Welcome back to the Gospel of John. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, your smartphone app, your tablet, or of course you can always cheat on the screen. We're going to be in John 15. If you don't have a Bible, then down the center column of seats are a couple Bibles stacked on top of each other. You are welcome to grab one of those. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, is going to be around 586. John chapter 15, 18 through through the chapter. We're actually going to cross over into chapter 16 today. As you're turning, uh, let me ask you this. You know, we, every day we are bombarded with pictures of, of hatred in our world. I mean, you can't escape it. You see it on social media. You see it in the news. Perhaps you see it right in front of your face in your own family, where you work, in the school that you go to. The schools now have um, anti-bullying campaigns just because of the the measures of the extent that people go to to, to express hate one to another. Um, and seemingly we can't, we can't um, escape it. But let me ask you, have you experienced hate personally? I mean, have you felt hated by someone or some group of people and for reasons that you can't even explain? That really is the topic that we're going to talk about here as we uh, happen upon John chapter 15. John 15 is, uh, is Jesus' final discourse. This is his last set of teaching uh, before he goes to the cross. And John 15 really is, it, it centers on the topics of relationship. Jesus talks about, firstly, our relationship to him and God the Father. He, he says, he gives us a parable and he gives us a command. He says, uh, God's the, vine, the, the, the gardener, I'm the, the vine, you're the branch, Unless you're connected into me, uh, you won't have life and you won't be able to bear fruit. And then he talks about our relationship to each other. He says we're supposed to love one another. He gives us a command that we're supposed to do that. And so, you know, Jesus is serious. And in the latter part of John chapter 15, crossing over into John 16, Jesus talks about our relationship to the world. He says, as a, as a Christian following me, this is what you should expect from the world that the world is going to hate you. So that's the introduction to our scripture verses today. We're going to start in verse 18, read all the way through the chapter, and cross over into chapter 16, verse 4. Let's read together. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that, I, that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues 
Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come and submit ourselves to your word. Uh, there's really two postures that we can have. We can, we can stand over your word and assume that we are um, doing whatever we want to do, or we can s- sit under your word. And today we choose as your people to, to sit under your word, to submit to it, um, to hear your voice through it, and Lord, to comply. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as a congregation and as an individual um, what you're saying to us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage and boldness to, to simply act this out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So in this passage today, um, John says, Jesus says, John captures Jesus' words. He uses the word hate or hatred or some, var- some variation of that at least eight times. And that's, that's a lot of times in one, uh, one short span of, of verses. Uh, and this is a challenging passage to preach for me, uh, if I'm honest, and it's not because of the content. The, the, the verses are pretty simple. As, we, as I lay them out, as we unpack them, it's not going to be anything that you don't understand. But here's the, here's the thing about these, these verses for us in the environment that, that we are in. If we were perhaps in an environment where we were um, more chastised or, or persecuted as a church, say, in, in Iraq or Afghanistan or, or China, where there's overt persecution of, of Christians for what they believe, then, then this would be an easier passage to, to think about and, and to talk through. Um, in the same way, if we were perhaps in a different point in history, the history of our church, this might be an easier passage to, to deal with as, as Jesus is laying out that, I mean, we're going to be hated. But we live in a day of affluence, affluence, okay? Not necessarily influence, affluence. And most of us haven't experienced the deep persecution that's mentioned here in this text. But here's what Paul says will happen to all of us that are Christians. In his second letter to Timothy, he says these words. He says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Now, persecution looks different for all of us. But here's Paul's emphasis even the desire to be godly, even a, even a little bit of a desire to simply do what God says and to follow God's commands is going to bring on for you uh, some measure of persecution. And so the truth is, in the Christian life, you should expect to experience something. Uh, I can recall when I was getting out of the army in 2000, 2006, uh, I, uh, my branch manager called me one day in February and he said, Jeff, all right, so we need to think about what you're going to do next in the army. And uh, I told him, I said, well, what if, what if I'm thinking about getting out? So it was a pregnant pause. He's like, he didn't know what to say. He's like, um, he said, uh, you won't be the first one to do that, but this won't be looked on favorably. He said, you need to go talk to those in charge of you at Fort Bragg. So he sent me to my chain of command, brigade level, core level. I talked to some very high ranking men and uh, um. I had I had the support of some, but there's there's one level of person that I talked to that that really chastised me. He says 
He says, uh, there are many that will say that uh, the army wasted a battalion command on you. I was a battalion commander. I had taken my battalion to Iraq, and I had just come out on the war college list. And so, you know, there, I, had a, I had had a good career in the army, and it, it was as if uh, this leader was telling me, um, because I was getting out to pursue vocational ministry, that I was making a big mistake. In fact, that... Um, I felt, he didn't use these exact words, but I felt that he was telling me I was stupid if I gave up my army career to get out and pursue the, you know, this, this religious mission that I, that I thought I was on. I can't say that I felt hated, but I did feel slighted. I felt animosity. And I think all of us will, will have, or perhaps you've already had, those kinds of experiences in your life. It could be in school. Um, in a, a bullying sense. It could be in your own family. Say you become a Christian and those in your family are anti-Christian and they chastise you because of, of your faith. It could be any number of things. It could be even um, those friends that you had before you became a Christian don't befriend you anymore because you're not their drinking buddy anymore. And so as we come to John 15, uh, in the likes of this idea that we will, hate, we will be hated, I want to ask two questions of our text. Two questions of our text today. The first is, why does the world hate Christians? Jesus is going to tell us that. And secondly, what should be our response? So let's first look at, why does the world hate Christians? Near the end of our passage, in verse 25, there's kind of an obscure verse. Jesus says this. He says, the world hated me without a cause. To look at that without putting it in context would would suggest to us that everything that happened to Jesus was was for not it, it there was no reason behind it and because we are following in jesus stead will be hated without any reason as well well obviously that's that's not the case um, jesus actually gives us three reasons why um, in in the verses before that as to why the world hates christians and i'm going to explain uh, verse 25 in a second so the first reason that the world hates christians is because it doesn't own you it's because the world doesn't own you. Verse 18. If, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If it were, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so to, to be a Christian, it's not just to hold to a certain set of traditions or rituals or beliefs or confessions, it's that those beliefs and confessions are supposed to shape how we live. Does that make sense? It's, it's not that we're just saying a whole bunch of mantra and, and, and thinking Ill, Ill, it's like mind, mind warping to, to change our perspective on things. We're supposed to actually live out the, the, the things that we're actually um, confessing. A Christian is uprooted from the world and grafted into the vine. Of course, the vine is Jesus. And so when you become a Christian, whatever you identify your life in before you came to faith in Jesus, those things, um, they become secondary. Uh, say that you were a prominent part of a political party or some organization that espoused these certain things. Or say that you were just into work and your work was everything to you and it really defined who you were. We could actually throw in gender and race and ethnicity and uh, what it means to be culturally whoever you are in that as well. When you become a Christian, it's, it's not that those identities completely go away, but what this is saying to us we have new allegiances when we uh, when we attach ourselves 
to Jesus. And that attachment to Jesus should change how we orient ourselves in the world. Our primary allegiance is to Jesus and his values should shape our values. And when that happens, I think the, the, what the scriptures testify to us is that we're supposed to look differently. We're supposed to act differently. Here's what the text says in verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, I've chosen you out of the world into a participation of life with me. Uh, the word chosen here is, is a very important word, and it's in the likes of what Jesus says in regards to his sovereignty over all of his creation. Uh, this is a word that is, uh, that's used also in Ephesians 1. This is what Ephesians 1 says about us when we come to faith. It says that he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so here's the here's the special thing about you when you come to faith is that God from eternity um, knew that he was going to call you to himself. And when God calls you to himself, he pulls you out of he pulls you out of the world and he makes you his own. And when God makes you his own, the world doesn't own you. And because the world doesn't own you, unfortunately, it won't like you. Here's the second thing that this, these verses are saying to us. Uh, these specific words, we're not of the world. Jesus pulls you out of the world so that you will be in the world, but not of the world. You won't be like the world anymore. And that's specific. Jesus gives us a different understanding of, of our priorities in life. You know, a Christian is one who values what God values. And if you value what God values, you're mostly going to value his word because this is how God reveals himself to us through his word and through his spirit. And if I could give you examples of of the value that we're supposed to get of what God values. I mean, it was it firstly starts with God values life. God values life. He created us in his image and likeness. And of all the things that he created, of the things that he created, he put human beings as the pinnacle of his creation. And so you have value and worth in life as a human being, breathing the air that God gave us to breathe because God said so. And he formed you in his image and his likeness. And of a number of things that I could mention, the first thing is, is we should value um, how God has made us. I mean, just look across this room. It's a, it's a tapestry of the color of, of, of the fall out there. We're like a, a, a box of Skittles here in this room. And honestly, I mean, I, I'm thinking of this now. I mean, I've prayed for this. I've prayed that our congregation would just look like a box of Skittles, that we would have all colors represented. Uh, I mean, look like our neighborhood. Our neighborhood is just it's a mixture of ethnicities from all over the country, from all over the world. And I think that's the that's the thing that God is painting amongst us. Not that really is. God values that. Why does he value that? I have no idea. But we should value what God values. And that means if we value what God values, that racism is wrong. It's wrong to take a person and to treat them differently because of the color of their skin or whatever their ethnicity or culture they come from. Sexism is wrong. God made the male and female, male and male, male and female. He created them. And there is no inequality amongst the sexes. Obviously, in the church and in the family, God sets that we should have differing roles. But male and female are created uh, really on the same par, equal in every way. If we believe what God believes, if we value what God values, then we should have an immense value for life itself. That means Christians are against abortion. And, you know, that's a content. 
I mean, you can't go anywhere in D.C. and not be amongst those who would just fight you to the death over this idea of abortion. But if we really believe what God says in his book, then only God can create life. Only a, a man and a woman can come together and be intimate, but only God can cause conception to happen in the womb. And if we value what God values, God values life. And so the sixth commandment is true. Thou shalt not murder. And if a newborn baby is conceived by God's own hand, then that's a living human being in the womb. And we shouldn't take we we, we don't have the right to end that 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 baby's life. We love we, we stand against abortion, but we also love those women who've had abortions. I, I, I've had very close relatives in my family who've had abortions. They've gone through this. And so you don't you don't hate. You don't condemn a woman who's had an abortion. You come alongside them and, you, and we pray. How can we help? There's redemption for everybody. Christians are ones who care about the poor. This is a mandate from Scripture. Christians should care about justice and mercy, about seeing the basic needs of people who have little met by those who have plenty. Christians should be mindful of the sinfulness of man. We don't put all of our hope in human government because if man is involved in human government, you know it's going to be screwed up. Right. I mean, and that's no slight against our government. I, I mean, we should pray for our leaders. But what this is saying is we can't put all of our hope in government as is as if it's the hope of the world. Our government isn't evil, but it's also not righteous because we're not completely righteous. We should pray for our government. Now, of course, this is a politi- politically charged uh, area that we're in. This is a politically charged time. And we I mean, we just started. We got to go through all the way to next November. And so some of you are hearing me and you're hearing me give a a, a certain I mean, you thinking I'm, I'm affiliated with a certain political party when I'm saying all this stuff. I mean, is he a Republican? Is he a Democrat? Is he an independent? Is he conservative? Is he liberal? I mean, if you value what God values, I mean, which which part of the which part of the you adhere to? I know some of y'all are thinking y'all y'all are thinking stuff, maybe. I would say neither. I would say both, both and. Because a Christian doesn't fit into the, the, the boxes that our world has. And Jesus didn't either. Here's what, what, what we should get from this. Christians stand outside the world. We don't belong to it. So why does the world hate Christians? Because um, the world doesn't own us. Jesus does. Secondly, the world uh, hates Christians because of our claim to authoritative, absolute truth. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And so the emphasis here firstly is on Jesus and his words. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you. And of course, Jesus said a lot of words. He taught a lot of stuff. And he's particularly focusing on the truth of his words. In fact, Jesus um, comes and he says, I embody the truth. I, I am the way, the truth and the life. In verse 21, he talks about God, the father. He says, God, the father has overall authority. And he's given that to me. In verse 22, he's speaking about his teaching. And really what, what I think the, the, the theme of these 
few verses here is, is, is what we see throughout all the Gospels, is that Jesus taught, and he taught, he taught with such authority that he actually, he actually challenged those people that were around him so much so that they, they began not to like him. Remember back in John 2, Jesus was entering the temple, and he came to the temple, and um, because there were men there doing things that were against the law, he, he tossed out the money changers. He took those men that were selling animals in the court of Gentiles, and he pushed them aside and said, I mean, you're, you're making a travesty of, of God's house. And the people pressed Jesus, and he says, they say, what authority do you, do you have to come and say these things to us and do these things that you're doing? And of course, they're questioning his authority. Fast forward to John chapter five. Jesus on a on a on a on a Sabbath day comes and heals an invalid who had been laying by the pool of, of Bethsaida for thirty eight years, and he just speaks a word. The man gets up and walks, and uh, the Pharisees are indignant about it. And guess what? They're indignant about. Are they indignant that, that that Jesus actually healed a man? Absolutely not. They're indignant that he actually healed someone on a Sabbath. And when they pressed Jesus, asking him, by what authority do you come and do these things? Of course, they are questioning his his authority. They're questioning um, how he's able to do that. And of course, later, later on in John, John chapter five, Jesus says, check it out. I only do what the father says do. I only say what he says to me. The father, by the way, has all authority on heaven and earth, and he's given it to me. And so what I'm doing, I'm doing by by the authority of none other than God himself. And so the Christian tells um, them of his relationship with, um, excuse me, I said that. Um, And so the Christian is one who follows in line with with all that Jesus taught in regards to the truth that he that he that he espoused, that there is such a thing as absolute truth. There is such a thing as authoritative truth, and it comes directly from the throne of God. We are supposed to identify with Jesus who taught with absolute authority and the claims to that truth. Now, here's the deal about the world, the world that we live in. There is no such there is no such thing as absolute truth in the world that we live in. The reality is we live in a day where the prevailing mindset of the culture says, do whatever you want. Whatever makes you happy, if no one else, if, if you're not going to um, get in anybody else's way or hurt people, then it's okay to do it. But the Christian should have the mindset of, you know, that, that's not quite right. Life can't be that simple that I can simply do whatever I want because because the freedoms that I have at some point are going to interfere with the freedoms that you have if we're all doing whatever we want. When people in the world say truth is relative, that what's true for me is truth for me, what's true for you is truth for you, then we should we should push back and say, uh, you know, that's not right. There is an absolute truth. There is black and white. There's right and wrong. There's true and false. And those things come from God. And because Christians claim to that, that there's a higher authority, the world balks at this truth. Um, here's, a, here's a funny story for you. Say you got a friend, and that friend um, comes to you. He's excited. He got this new appliance. And he says, check it out, man. I got this silverware warmer. I got a silverware warmer from Target, and I love it. You know, I, the winter's coming, and I hate touching cold silverware. And so I got this silverware warmer, and he's like, hmm, I've never seen one of those. So let's go, let's go to your house and check that thing out. And so you go to his house, and you go to his kitchen, 
and you see his silverware warmer. Guess what it is? It's a toaster. He's like, hey, dude, um, you know that's a toaster, right? Um, you're supposed to take slices of bread and you put it in there and the, the rays from the, the, the eyes heats it up and it'll brown your bread and make it toasty. You can put jam on it and enjoy it. He's like, um, don't tell me what to do with my stuff. This is, a, this, is a silverware, this is a silverware warmer. Everybody's got one now, and I got one, and I like it. It's a silverware warmer. It's like, well, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but I've actually read the manual. This is a toaster. He's like, don't judge me. Don't judge me. I can do whatever I want. That really is a depiction of, of us in the world. Here's the thing. We've read the manual. We know, we know God. We know God's design for his world. And anyone that hasn't read this is absolutely clueless. And they, they're looking at the world as if it was a, a silverware toaster when, when we know the true design of the world. And, and here's the pushback. When we tell them this is what God says about his world, they get indignant. They, they challenge us, and they'll even hate us for what we believe. The world gets offended because uh, at Christians because we say that we understand what God, uh, what, how God's designed his world because we've, we've actually read the manual. They think we're arrogant uh, because no one can know God's mind. Uh, the underlying assumption is that God is distant, he's mysterious, and the, he, he's unknowable. Anyone that claims to know him is, is speculating. But here's, the, here's the, the faith that we have. Christianity isn't about speculation. It's about revelation. Christianity is about revelation. If, if God had not revealed himself to us, we would have no idea of who he was. But guess what? God revealed himself to us. He revealed himself through his word and by his spirit. More importantly, he reveals himself through his son. Jesus comes down, sent by God the Father, and he incarnates himself into the skin and clothes that we wear. He walked our roads. He ate our food, drank our drink. He became one of us to reveal himself to us. And here's the, here's the unthinkable thing. Not only does Jesus reveal himself to us, but he becomes like us that he might save us. God does the, un- the unthinkable thing. To, to make himself known to us. Early in John 15, we read that, uh, that God thinks so much of us that when we, when we begin a relationship with him, he calls us his friend. And this is, who, this is, this is the picture that we should have of, of the God that we serve. God doesn't keep us on the edges of, I mean, it's not like a, a friendship where you're like stretching to shake somebody's hand. He lets us all the way in. He lets us all the way in on who he is, what he expects of us. He lets us all the way in on his design for his world, and he gives us the opportunity to, to be his friend so that we can serve him and make him known by, by, the, by those people that we touch in the world. And so when Christians just, I mean, when you believe in and declare the authoritative truth that's in the Bible, that this is the way that God designed the world, um, people are going to oppose that idea and they're going to hate you. Why does, why, do, why, do, why does the world hate Christians? Firstly, because the, the, the world doesn't own you. Secondly, because you believe in absolute authoritative truth. And thirdly, the world hates you, hates Christians because you bring conviction. This is to say the presence of Christian, Christians in our world should bring 
conviction. Verse 22. If they had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now no one. uh, But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. And so uh, Jesus is basically saying, check it out. If if I hadn't come and spoken, if I hadn't come and said the words that I've said, then they wouldn't be guilty of of any sin. But guess what? I've actually come and I've said quite a few things. They're guilty. He also says, uh, hey, if I hadn't come and done miracles amongst all these people, then they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But guess what? I've come and I've done a lot of miracles. I've revealed who God is by the things that I've done. They are guilty as charged. And this is the the, the testimony that we have of, of Scripture. Jesus brought conviction. He brings conviction in two ways. In verse 22, he says he brings it by his words. In verse 24, he says he brings it by his works. And I think the the, the implication is we should bring conviction too. And I have to be careful here because I'm not I don't I'm not trying to suggest a, a legalistic way of, of going about and living your life. But I think the here's here's what God purposes for you that you would that you would bear fruit. We see that earlier in John chapter 15. Not only that, in Gen- way back in Genesis 1, we're called vice regents of God. God put us on the earth that we might represent him to a world that, that desperately needs him. And if we are vice regents, if we're representative, representatives of God on the earth, we carry the very presence of God in our being. Guess what God wants you to do? When you're walking around, people want, people want Jesus to be known through you and your testimony, through you and all the things that you do, not in weird ways, but in very subtle and overt ways, he wants you to, to represent him on the earth. And if you're representing Jesus on the earth, I would beg to say that when you are around other people, sometimes they're going to feel convicted. Now, I, you can think of a couple examples. The most prevalent example is the awkward, um, the awkward group that you walk upon and uh, somebody's telling a dirty joke. And you come up, I mean, y'all, have, you've experienced this before, right? Somebody's telling a dirty joke, and you have the opportunity to, to stand around and to, uh, and to participate in that dirty joke and laugh and just brush it off. Or you could say something, or, or, or what I think what the, the, the text is suggesting us is, is that because of who they already know you to be, that they just cut the joke off because you walk up. And perhaps you've had that happen to you. Um, I would think of young people. Uh, Halloween was yesterday, and there's lots of parties going on, even in my neighborhood. Uh, young people could be young people sometimes, and say you're a young person, and you go to a party, and everybody's underage, and everybody's drinking. All right, and so what would be the right witness for you? How could you bring conviction? You could bring conviction by choosing not to drink. And, of course, all your friends want you to drink because they want you to take a sip so they won't feel guilty. If you take a sip... We're all okay, but if you don't take a sip, young people, then you're going to bring your friends conviction because you're doing the right thing. First of all, you're not drinking underage, and secondly, you're representing Jesus. Uh, we could give examples, of course, with men. Uh, men have a habit of standing in, in groups and and talking about other women, and sometimes even talking down on our wives. 
But men, but men in the room, what would happen if we just didn't put up with that? If if we got into a group and other men around us are talk, talking about our wives, we stood up and said, you know what? I love my wife. My wife's my bride. She's my joy. She's my queen. Don't y'all love your wives like that? I would tell you the conversation would stop right there. All those dudes were just like, oh, man, check it out. Ladies, I got to hit up on you, too. I mean, y'all got a habit of getting together and woe is me. Life is just so awful. I got these rugrats at home and I'm a working woman. I got to come home and cook meals for all my family. I mean, what would happen if you had a more positive outlook on life and the words that came out of your mouth were more representative of the, the thankfulness that you had for God that, that simply gave you breath and life? And I'm, I'm probably I'll stop right there. <laughs> What would happen in all these examples if Christians would simply go against the status quo? I think Christians, by their presence, are supposed to bring conviction, not legalistically, but we're supposed to we carry the spirit of God in us. And it's supposed to change something when we come to the room. This is what Jesus says. The world is going to hate you, Christian. And here's why. Firstly, it doesn't own you. Secondly, because we believe in absolute authoritative truth. And thirdly, because we should bring conviction. We need to ask one more question of the text. And it's this. How should we respond? How do we live in the reality of a world where we will be hated? And and John records these words of Jesus in verse 16. So uh, swoop down to verse uh, chapter 16, verse one. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The obvious meaning of, uh, of this section of, of chapter 16 is Jesus is warning the disciples, hey, don't walk away. Jesus disciples are going to face persecution beyond what we are able to comprehend. If you if you've read church history, all of the apostles were martyred in some great way. John was the only one that that wasn't martyred. But guess what? John was boiled alive and didn't die. I mean, that guy had some Teflon skin or something. That's why they sentenced him to the island of Patmos to live an isolated life. And that's where he wrote the the book of Revelation. And so Jesus wants the disciples to know that when persecution starts, don't think that something's going wrong. He's like, I've, I've told you so. It's going to happen. And by telling them ahead of time, he was hoping to he was hoping to to strengthen their faith. Don't go astray, he's telling them. Don't give up on your faith. But he also goes deeper. And we're going to have to back up to verse 27 to see that. He tells them that they must testify. Look at verse 27. He says, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Of course, the focus here is Jesus wants the disciples to know that their part, that part of their mission is to testify, to, to be witnesses. Y'all remember the, I mean, I don't, I, I, I grew up not as a Christian, but I grew up going to church and before church even started, the old saints, I mean, the old saints, they would come up and they would stand in front of the congregation and there'd be music playing and there'd be, there'd be an interchange of a little bit of song singing, hymns and stuff. And then someone would testify. And they would thank God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit and the saints that were present for all the things that had had gone right for them. 
And that really is a sense of what what Jesus is calling these disciples to. All right. I need you when life is just like going to H.E. double high sticks to stand up and testify. Be a witness because life is going to get hard. Jesus is saying when life gets hard, when things get difficult, even when you perceive that people hate you, don't crawl under a rock. Be bold. Don't fear, knowing that this is the way it's going to be. And so the first response that he's calling us to is to boldness instead of fear. You know what? We got lots of reasons to be fearful. A very few of you in this room actually have professions or you have walks of life that puts you in jeopardy of your life and of your job. If anyone would even know that you're a Christian, that's a few of you. For the majority of us, we are we are people who um, who are either afraid of what people might think if they know we're a Christian and, and uh, or people know that we're a Christian. But but we're so what's so worldly minded that we've lost all of our witness. And so Jesus is he's chastising us and he's challenging us. He's like, don't be like that because persecution is going to happen. And and because I've pulled you out of the world, put my spirit in you. I need you to actually stand up, be bold and testify. I need you to not testify in a weird way. I just need you to represent me on the earth in, in normal ways to your neighbor, to the people you work with. Um, as you're playing at the playground with the people who you play with the playground every day. He's saying, do it in those ways. Be bold instead of being fearful. I like what Paul says in Colossians. He reminds us that we should be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. I'm, I'm not telling you to wear a big cross. I mean, this is sometimes we think Christianity is like this. I got to wear a big cross. I got I to gotta have this A-frame sign. It says, if you don't love Jesus, you're going to hell with a, with a bullhorn. Jesus is not calling you to that. I'm not calling you to that because I would say you're weird. Don't do that. Right? Because you ain't going to attract nobody to Jesus doing that stuff. Here's, here's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to not be afraid. He says, don't be afraid. Why? Because he's pulled. I mean, Jesus is. That's what verse 25 means. Jesus, he prophesied it in the Old Testament. In, G, in verse 25, Jesus is saying, I'm going to say it through the psalmist that the world's going to hate you. I'm going to say it a long time ago. So when it happens 2000 years later, you'll know it's going to happen to me. And if you're following me, it's going to happen to you. Colossians 4, 5, Jesus says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. I think this is a, a this is a great scripture memory verse for us to know that God wants us to be wise in regards to how we approach the world as 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 witnesses for him. God calls us to be bold instead of fear, but he also calls us to proclamation instead of protest. Verse 27 again. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We live in a, in a country now that has only a veneer of Christianity just covering it. We got, our, we got our currency that says in God we trust, but we don't trust in God. We trust in our money. We trust in our stuff. We trust in our ability to provide for ourselves. 40, 50 years ago, everybody called themselves a Christian. Um, Christians were respected in our society. Pastors were some of the most respected people in, in, in the world. That ain't so today. In fact, Christianity, Christianity and, and people like us have been moved to the fringes of our society. We're no longer privileged people. Uh, we are not only progressively being pushed to the fringes, uh, um, 
I mean, we're not welcome sometimes in many parts of our society. Y'all ever notice that? Just Christianity and our and what we believe and our God is not even welcomed. And and here's our response to that. A lot of times we want to get angry. When we, when, we get, when we get pushed out of the center, a lot of us want to fight back and say, you know what? You come after us, we'll come after you. But Jesus rebukes us in Matthew 5, 44, and he says, this is how you're supposed to act in the world. When people hate you, you're called to love them. Love your enemies. When they when they slap you on the cheek, turn them to the other. When they ask you for your for your coat, give them all the all your clothes. This is a word for us. When society pushes Christianity to the fringes, we aren't supposed to fight back to our death. When we're pushed to the side, this doesn't change our mission. And what does Jesus calls us to do, he calls us, first of all, to be a witness. But then he says we're to proclaim and testify. And history shows that when, cre- when Christianity is persecuted and marginalized, we testify and proclaim the gospel. And what happens? Christianity grows. It grows when we're pushed to the margins. And that's what God is calling us to. There's one more question we need to ask here. How do we actually get the power to do all that Jesus is asking us to do? If Jesus is asking me not to crawl under a rock, if he's asking me, commanding me even not to be afraid, if he's telling me that that he expects me to be a witness and a testimony in this world to all that he's done, then then how do I do it, even if I have a little fear? He tells us that in verse 26. Back up to verse 26. When the Holy Spirit comes, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Here's what Jesus says. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father sends and who comes from me, he goes before you. In fact, the Holy Spirit is testifying and witnessing to the to the power and the works of, of God before you even start doing it. And so a, a, a lot of times we think that the work of God belongs to us. But here Jesus gives us a different perspective. He says, the work that God has to do is the Holy Spirit's work. And, and guess what we have the privilege of? We have the privilege of joining the Holy Spirit and his work. And when you come to faith in Jesus, God is not just on the perimeter walking alongside with you. We said that a week ago. He's actually in you, empowering you to do all that God calls you to do, helping you to, to not crawl on the rock and be afraid empowering you with your words and also your witness to be all that God has 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 destined for you to be. And so here's the here's the exhortation of this passage. Don't lose hope. We go out in the in the spirit and in the power of the the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, when we have him with us, we go out in boldness, knowing that the very spirit of God is going in us and with us. He tells us not to go in our own power, but in his power. And part of that is is going in the spirit of the gospel. And this is the spirit of the gospel. Jesus stepped into our world. And and although he became one of us and at the conclusion of his life, he was hated. He was hated to the point of death. And he he subjected himself to that. So that we might have life and and. It's unfortunate that as we follow Jesus, as we do what he's simply called us to do, that 
that will experience the life that he experienced, which is a, a, a life of hatred, will be called names, will be, will be pointed at and said bad things about. People will misrepresent us and misconstrue us because of what we believe. But Jesus is with us. And here's, here's the encouraging thing that Jesus tells us. If we're willing to simply represent him on the earth, we who follow him, we, we have the, we'll face opposition, but we get the opportunity to, to, to point the world who needs to be saved to the God that saves. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we see a lot of hate in our world. Some of us in this room see it up close and personal. Others of us see it at a distance. We see it on TV. We see it in social media. We see it in our schools. We see it sometimes in unexpected places. We see it in the political arena. And so whether any of us have uh, just up up close and personal experience that the hatred that happens in, in our world because of their faith, you tell us it's coming, that those who desire to live godly will will be persecuted. And so, Lord, we pray for faith, faith to believe uh, in you, that you're a good God, that you wouldn't give us what we, give us more than we can bear. Lord, you gave us, uh, you gave us insight from your word that this would happen, that persecution would come to Jesus, and as we follow him, it will come to us. And so we pray for, for boldness. We pray for boldness instead of fear, that you would give us uh, the wherewithal to stand against those who, who hate us because of their hatred towards you. But we pray that you would help us to, to stand against those that would mock Christianity. Give us courage to speak your words. Lord, we pray that you would help us to value what you value, regardless of how popular it is. And then God put a word in our mouth, a word in our mouth that would, that would also be uh, uh, just a word of, of challenge, but a word of comfort to those who are seeking you. Lord, we, we pray that you make us better witnesses of the testimony of our lives. Speak to a, a world that desperately needs you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.